this is only 13 years old, this reserve. So what was it before? Uh, sort of farmland pretty much messed around with. But now it's actually in pretty good nick. Not many old growth, it's secondary growth. You'll see quite a few tree stumps. The larger trees, where they lose their bark up the top, are the black butts. And then we have a few tallow woods, iron barks in where the creek is, some grey gums and blue gums. And then the paper barks along the creek, of course, and casuarinas here and there. Then towards the beach, we have banksia dune, which we'll go to this afternoon, probably. We're in the Jagoon Nature Reserve, where John Bennett's poetry finds daily inspiration. It's a special place, quiet, untrodden, and there's a creek. It's not a showy beauty, but it's peaceful and it's rich in wildlife. There are many such spots all around the coastline of Australia. We've been chatting about poetry in the bush ever since John wrote about Jagun for ABCRN's Trees Project back in 2013. So I've finally come up to see his country for myself. There are birds everywhere and he has a keen eye and ear. There's the whip bird, obviously. There's the old cooker, of course. You'll hear them in the morning. What's that little squawker? The lewin's there, but that wasn't making the, the sound. And what's that? That's the mechanical laughter of the uh, lewin's. One of the most common honey to see here. The lewin's are here. When we get towards the banks in the sea, the white-cheeked honeyeaters take over. They all have their favourite piece of habitat. Because birds make different calls. Like we have the butcher birds often in the morning, and they have one call at first light, even before Eos really, is hardly any light. Then they have their beautiful fluting for dawn, and then they can have other calls other times. But what is this Eos? Tomorrow, we're getting up in the dark to experience that particular time of day, the magical half hour before dawn, which John calls Eos. But for now, let's keep walking a bit. Check out the local creek for the first time as it winds its way to an ocean lagoon. It's not far away. So it's a beautiful, quiet place, and all we can hear wind in the trees, white cheeked honeyeater, fantail cuckoo, a little bit of highway noise, and a little bit of sea behind us. What you can't hear is that beautiful reflection rippling over the branches over the creek. So we're in the middle of Jagun, really. It's a quite a narrow reserve. It's not very large, but I think it's really important, and I find it so beautiful. <laughs> Let's bring out one of your poems, then. Spring can't wait. A golden whistler sings from a low bloodwood branch. Flycatchers are chasing a cuckoo, and honeyeaters chase each other with tenacity as spring charges forward. Not a breeze in the sky, but leaves are falling onto a stream of greenhood orchids that unfurl a medieval script, mysterious contraption to attract passing insects. A kookaburra calls, no sign of Tarzan 
in this strange, perfectly ordinary, glorious day. Graysale fairy orchids lift pink fingers from sandy earth. I document koala scats, trace neighborhood branches. Lou saw one by the creek last week, the first in years. Is this the resurrection? Does X mark a shifting spot? A shadow rubs the surface of dusk, runs across the rigid road mobbed by magpies and melts into the fuzz of bush. The tail of a pheasant cuckoo? Slater says, usually seen running across road. Thud, thud. Aru bounds in a consistent darkness. Who is on guard duty? There's no sign of light and motion or Friday's fireflies. As you might be able to tell from his accent, John Bennett wasn't born here. He arrived three decades ago, a travelling, adventuring young man, and settled here without planning to. He still has ties back home, including his mother. His father died last year, and he travelled home and sat with him. So this is uh, for my father, and it's also it's called John Constable in Australia. So there's two U's in it. One's my father, and one's John Constable, the great painter who people are too familiar with, really. Puffs of chalk white cumulus, egg whites, blended with a little oil, billow into battered cloud and grey static, shredding spit and polished navy blue the rain has left behind. It's your sky, but the sea is all wrong. The horse is too white. Representation stumbles, pitched out of kilter. Weymouth and Brighton submerge from sight. The Pacific seems entire. On the phone, I learn you've been discharged. There's nothing more they can do. You sound exhausted, but happy to be home. Your roof has sieved snow's first coat onto sedentary grass. It's all in the Bible. Rain, rivers, ice, incest, death and prophecy. But not my impaired memory of boarding school, or this noisy squad of rainbow lorikeets, or the colours pressed into a restive estuary that slipped between kindergarten blue and cocktail green. Symbols of purity. My father, I think, my mother is ambitious and creative and loves the arts. My father was a bank teller. Now, I think he's probably the only person in the history of the world who was a bank teller from the age of 17 to retired at 60. He was offered the managership of a small bank in the South Downs, and he didn't want the responsibility. He was a very conservative man who just had no ambition, so I'm halfway between my father and my mother. I want an easy life. I'm not ambitious, but... I'm quite creative and energetic, like my mother is. I never knew that he hated his job every day of his life. And he never told Mum. He never told us. And I didn't know till later when she told me. And I was with him when he was dying. And uh, we never had much in common. I think he didn't, he didn't know what poetry was, wasn't interested in music. We had football in common, soccer, and uh, the weather. 
you know, English, middle class. That's what you talk about with your father. He never took me fishing or that sort of thing. And yet, uh, yeah, he got us through. He, and he, for that, I'm full of, I love him for that, you know. You didn't care for water as much as the miracle of air. Oxygen and hydrogen, so light they should synthesize gas molecules that freeze and expand. Ice floats and rock shatters to soil and life. Ribs talked, head still, eyes shattered from the spray and discs the color of pollen. I stroke slowly, then float back on the current until nails trawl sand. How can we drown? This idea of being a decent man. What's decency, I wonder? I think it's a very English word, decency, coming from my upbringing. It's not a very ambitious term. You know, you don't have to be Mother Teresa or Albert Schweitzer, but you just have to be nice, another very English term. And you have to be, hopefully, generous to people you know. Generous when there's a terrible tsunami and donate some of your ill-gotten gains, because our gains are based on third world labour and exploitation, mostly, in the West. But being decent just means living a life without it taking too much from the planet, really. You know, I wonder if we can ever be decent enough. Well, no, I mean, <laughs> I counted up how many pigs and sheep and cattle and how much chocolate and milk I probably consumed in my 60 years. It's a bloody mountain. And uh, I've taken so much off this planet, you know. And then, of course, there's all my toys, my hi-fi, my cameras. We take and take, and um, most of us don't realise it. And if you do, as we say, what can you do? You can try and be sensible about it and not buy a new camera every year, which I, you know, I don't buy a new camera every year. You can try and consume less, but we are, we become consumers. We're never decent enough. I mean, you get, you get martyrs, you get people like Mother Teresa, you can always do more, but, you know, you have your life, you want to be happy, content. We can outsource our decency, can't we, by giving money to exactly. That's others. a good way of putting it, exactly. I just wanted to show you the kookaburra. He flew that nest. way. No, there's a nest in a termite mound. It's often they're so quiet. They just sit there, talk, you know, <laughs> the way they hunt. They're studying patience and attention. This is what art is what EOS is about. And we're so bad at attention. Sorry, I'm distracted by a beautiful scarlet honey eater. Now where's it gone? They're one of those beautiful birds. Can you actually oh it's just up here. It's just back up here. Can you see it? Oh gosh. It just oh look at the light on the on the scarlet. Just glimpses oh, of light. Okay. No, that's a scarlet honeyeater, the male in breeding plumage. Talk to me about this theory of EOS, because you speak about it and you write about it a lot. What's EOS? EOS is a Greek god, sister to Helios, the sun god, and her job was to open the gates of heaven to let the light come in, pre-dawn, where Helios would mount his chariot and sail across the heavens, the sun. So you've attached this god's name to a time of day? 
Yeah, it's just the time of day, and it's funny because I don't believe in gods, I don't believe in God, and EOS just seemed to be a term I became endeared with, which I don't quite understand why. If you look up EOS on the net, you just get Canon cameras, you know, it's uh, unfortunate in that sense. But um, EOS is special because this gives you time out from the normal world of work, of mobile phones. This is before dawn, this is half an hour before when the sky has the best colours it's ever going to get until sunset. It's much fresher than sunset. You're usually alone because I think some solitude is important for everyone. And in the modern world, you know, solitude is a rare thing. And um, aesthetically, it's beautiful. But Eos is anywhere in a garden, in a park, in a city. It's before the city wakes up before capitalism goes into overdrive, before consumerism gets going, before the kids, you have to get the kids to school, make their lunches, before you have to go to work or look for a job. When you're free of these things, and it's the closest you'll ever get to your ancestors, to whom we owe so much, they'd all have seen Eos. How can we learn to pay attention to what we're seeing? I mean, you effortlessly see the reflections on the boughs of that paper bark. Your eye skates across and sees quite a lot. Well, I think it's just practice. I mean, attention is weird. Richard Walheim, uh, the philosopher, can look at a Poussin painting for two hours. Five minutes, they'll be going mad, probably. Rothko wanted you to sit in his room and meditate on the five or so Seagram paintings down the Tate. And I was there a few months ago. Well, I was trying to meditate on them, but I was distracted because all the other five people in the room sitting on the benches were on their mobile phones, uh, which is a different kind of attention. I don't know what they're looking at. They might have been researching Mothgo, but I, I doubt it. But attention, I think, you've just got to be interested in things. If you're interested in things, you'll pay attention to them. If you come to appreciate the criminally flowering now, then you'll pay attention to it. I mean, if you see how a hunter hunts, the attention to the wind, to what the animal's doing, to their own footsteps, where they're going to put their foot next. The kind of attention we need isn't that kind of attention. That kind of attention's lost. And you don't have it either, really. You've observed of yourself. Well, I hate New Year's resolutions, but I made one I wanted to keep, and it was not to go on the internet and look at emails before noon. I thought simple. I thought, what a great news resolution. I've always thought they're silly. I'd give up smoking, give up drinking, those things. I thought, right, this is one for me. I broke it day one. I broke it day one. <laughs> I've got no self-control, no willpower. So this is from the poem Spring, 25th of September. Thunder blankets the roof, lightning cracks and crashes, rain beats the fronds, too much movement to see the scrub rain calling from the chaos of ferns. I pull over my hood, blinkered, look up into the call of a robin. The forest is slurred, grey-green, fogged, sound muffled, except the staccato of rain on Gore-Tex. A row of skinny, inconspicuous, pencilled-in trunks sprout sprays of green stems, seeding masses of yellow pea flowers. Rain runs down the sleeves into my pockets, wetting my pen and paper, sabotaging my art. A methodology of neem. So there's two things there. There's, first of all, there's 
the observation of the creatures and how they are in the bush at that point in time. Are you always walking? Do you sit and just wait and watch, even if it's for five minutes? Well, bird watching, sometimes you do sit and wait for the birds to come to you. Yes, but that's if I'm in sort of bird watching mode. Sometimes I'm just in walking mode where I tend not to. It's more of a strolling mode because I stop to take photographs, stop for the birds. Because I used to be this bushwalking group, it was just friends. But I had to stop going because I was always getting lost. I was always last, stopping to see things. And they wanted to do their 18Ks and get to the pub. The other thing is the way nature imposes on you as a human in that landscape. The rain is falling on your Gore-Tex and you can hear it. It immediately makes you think of the sound of it and it runs down into your pockets and, and interrupts your note-making, you know, that technology of note-making. So it's a really good example of the way nature and human butt up against each other, I guess. Yeah, well, I think it always does. I mean, we're animals with techno, skilled, uh, with technologies like writing, and uh, which always distance us from nature, but at the same time we are what we are and we have to use what tools we have to the best of our ability. Uh, there's no point pretending we can't write, there's no point pretending we, we can't speak language. I mean, we wouldn't be human. What was that bird? That was, do you know Golden Whistler has a beautiful black and white bib with really gorgeous yellow belly. Wow, so where are we now? Here we are at the estuary of Deep Creek. And Deep Creek's a sizable river really, but that's its name, Deep Creek. There's Gumbangia further around the corner, we can't see it, there's the birthing place where the Gumbanga women used to give birth on the banks of the river. There's a bridge just out of sight now because it's so dark. Lovely old wooden bridge that takes you from a campground across to the surf, which you can hear. There's lights in the distance to Nambaka heads. But you've got this calm river, the tide's coming in, so it's, it's about 25 minutes before sunrise, so the horizon's sort of blood orange red, low down with some bluey, purpley clouds just above. And Venus is high in the sky, there's some other stars. And uh, just us two in this beautiful spot with the trees behind us, you can hear the birds starting to wake up, the robins and honey eaters. So this is my favorite Eos spot, just to take in Eos, which is funny, I don't believe, I'm not one really for mythology, let alone gods, but Eos is just a term for this amazing space and this time where you can breathe the fresh air, you can feel connected, you can almost feel, you're breathing the oxygen that the plankton of the ocean and the trees behind us are giving us. We're breathing argon atoms that my ancestors, my hominid ancestors breathed in, Buddha breathed in, Jesus breathed in. We're circulating this energy through our breath, so we're connected to this. At the same time, this is so beautiful, and the ocean out there is so huge that I think we forget we need science. And why we need science is there's five trillion pieces of plastic floating in that ocean, 
And from here, it looks pristine, it looks beautiful. And you wouldn't know it without science. So you have to realise that, but at the same time, the beauty is awesome. It's sort of sublime, because this vast sky we've got, the ocean, you can sort of feel almost the power of the ocean behind this, the river sandbank over there. Yeah, you've got this limpid river, the tide slowly coming in, bringing its ripples, bringing all the light from the horizon towards us in these beautiful flowing lines and interference patterns. And um, hopefully soon we'll see more of those raptors we saw yesterday coming over. They wait for just before sunrise normally, Brahmi kites, ospreys and white-bellied sea eagles. I mean, you say that EOS is forgiving and so you can take photographs and, and make notes and so on. But the minute you put a camera to your eye or you take your eye away from the changing light or the falling leaf in the creek and put it down to paper and pen or camera, doesn't that change things? No, but I do sometimes, yeah, I sometimes leave the camera behind, but rarely. I mean, one problem is that the, the human brain it's wonderful, but we can't concentrate, not even women can concentrate on two things at once. It's, it's impossible. And I actually gave up photography. I was travelling around the world with two ME Supers, Pentaxes, one colour, one black and white. And I realised I wasn't there. I was seeing everything in terms of colour, composition, and I wasn't really being there. So I gave away photography for ages, but I only took it up seriously here because it's so beautiful. But the problem is, I'm an artist. And we are curious beings, we're creative beings, and even though with a camera there's a different way of being with EOS, you're paying attention to the colours even though by focusing on a camera you might be missing a goshawk or a white-bellied seagull flying overhead. You miss things. But however you are with EOS, you're going to miss things. We're, you know, we're, not, um, we're not gods, we're not all seeing all powerful. So this is actually a poem about Eos, but this is, we're actually at the edge of Oyster Lagoon. So we're on a bit of a hind dune with Banksias in front of us. And then there's a clear view to the shallow stretch of water, which is kind of golden color from the sand. And there's this thin stretch of sand, a beautiful golden color, and beyond the Pacific, a, a royal blue, a much deeper blue a little ribbon of breakers, the white froth of the breakers. So it's a gorgeous spot. It is. What uh, poem have you got for it? Well, this is called On the Beach, April, and it's an extract. These grains of sand are the product of wind's exuberance, and this June, one of its accomplishments. Swept off the waves, Sea's breath catches sand grains and flings them into airstreams, skimming a beach until gravity yanks them back to earth. As each grain hits the ground, the impact knocks others up into the airflow, driving the sand further downwind in a continual process of saltation, from the Latin to tango, surfing in waves. Leaf and root trap the wind-blown sand, sculpting the dunes, gripping tight until the next storm surge. Honey-eaters scratch arias from banksias raiding the berm. 
Hypnotic reflections wriggle eel-like on sandbank curves, and sunbeams track veins of creamy quartz splicing dark siltstone. My lens is keen to compose what light and timing offer. Focus hunts glassy entertainment on a scintillant pool locked in mineral blackness, floating floors, kelp scraps and crab claws. The lens slaps light onto an oxidised silicon semiconductor powered by lithium ions, processed by robots and third world labour. Is this machine appropriate technology for our planetary boundary? Honeyed light creeps around splayed legs of the pandanus. Unleashed, it untangles the clifftop, fingering each billowing leaf. Low tide butts a dark spine. I try one last shot to see, but I'm bleached. There's a beautiful sound of that wash coming in, and the ripples. It's coming in really fast. It does, so it's we can see where it goes up to. Up, won't yeah. It? yeah, so it's a big flat area that currently has the sand kind of reflecting the ripples of the water, really, doesn't it? It does. And uh, often there's a lagoon here, but as I say, this is so dynamic, we came back from overseas a couple of months, and the river mouth had shifted 50 metres. Already the, the colours going from the sky. Yes. The reds have gone, there's some orange blush to it, almost some greens. And then the colour fades more until five minutes before sunrise, and then it bounces back again, the colour. And then, soon after that, you have to avert your eyes because it's too bright and turn back towards the bush and uh, you can start bird-watching. Oh, what's that bird? There's an egret. See how white it is down... It's quite far distant to the right of the bridge. There's that white light in the tree. Oh, yes. A long way away, but... Those feathers just capture every ounce of light they can. Hello. 